Welcome to the new Arab Voice, our podcast bringing you compelling stories and deep dives from the Middle East, Africa, Asia, and beyond. I'm Gaia Karamazza, and from now on, I'm happy to say that I'll be joined by my colleague and brilliant staff writer at The New Arab, Dania Hajaji. Welcome, Dania. Thanks, Gaia. Hi, and thank you so much for tuning into this episode of The New Arab Voice. My name is Daniel Hijaji, and I'm a Libyan-born journalist who joined The New Arab's London newsroom earlier this year. Over the past few months, my coverage has leaned towards social issues in the Arab world, And that includes women's rights, which we will be touching upon this week. So for this episode, we'll be examining the significance of Joe Biden's direct address to the Muslim American community. If I have the honor of being president, I will end the Muslim ban on day one. Then the forced sterilization of Uyghur Muslim women in China. I had IUD soon after my son was born, and that is what was compulsory. And then we'll end on the Me Too movement's long overdue arrival in Egypt. Some of them do not want to take legal action because of family reputation and all of these different uh, culturally and social norms that have been rooted in them. But first, we just wanted to say that as we were finalizing this podcast episode, we heard news of the tragic colossal blast that devastated Lebanon's capital, Beirut. We didn't have time, unfortunately, to do the story justice and dive deep into the matter. But we will dedicate special coverage to this tragedy in our next episode. In the meantime, we wanted to share with you what we know. The explosion erupted at Beirut's port and caused widespread damage across the city. The provisional death toll currently stands at 137 deaths, with more than 5,000 people injured. Lebanese authorities say that the blast was caused by ammonium nitrate, an odorless substance commonly used as a fertilizer, but we know that that has also been used as a bomb ingredient. 2,750 metric tons of the material were being stored in a warehouse at the port for over six years without appropriate safety precautions. This blast happened amidst a worsening economic crisis in the country, which has raised poverty levels to as much as 50% of the population. As many as 300,000 people were made homeless, according to the governor of Beirut, and few will be able to afford to repair or rebuild their homes. Sadness has given away to anger, as many blame the government for leading Beirut to its ruins. In the absence of a meaningful state action, multiple countries have dispatched humanitarian aid to Lebanon, and on the ground, several local organizations are swiftly responding to the aftermath of the explosion, one of them being the volunteer-led Lebanese Red Cross. As the Lebanese work to rebuild their country, we at the New Arab Voice encourage our followers to consider donating to the organization of their choice. And make sure you follow the New Arab's coverage of the Beirut blast on our website and social media channels for more information. With less than 100 days left before Americans head to the polls, this episode will launch the New Arab special coverage of the U.S. presidential elections on November 3. 
Be sure to follow The New Arab on Facebook and Twitter to keep up with our reporting on a presidential race that will have far-reaching effects on America and the world. So a couple of weeks ago, Democratic presidential hopeful Joe Biden appeared at a summit organized by Engage, a Muslim-American political action committee. Now, this was the first time a U.S. presidential candidate directly addressed Muslim Americans, of which there are at least 3.45 million in the United States. That's according to the Pew Research Center. Although this number represents around 1% of the total U.S. population, Muslim Americans are a critical voting bloc in swing states such as Michigan, Florida, Ohio, and Texas. In his remarks, Biden covered a wide array of issues that matter to Muslim voters. I wish we taught more in our schools about the Islamic faith. I'll be a president who seeks out and listens to and incorporates the ideas and concerns of Muslim Americans on everyday issues that matter most to our communities. That will include having Muslim American voices as part of my administration. I'll work with Congress to pass hate crimes legislation. I have and I'll continue to speak out for the Uyghurs, Rohingya, to meet the moral demands of a humanitarian crisis in Syria, Yemen, and Gaza. I'll continue to champion the rights of Palestinians and Israelis to have a state of their own. I spoke with Mubashra Tazemul, senior research fellow in Islamophobia, who found Biden's remarks to be a drastic shift from how U.S. politicians have addressed Muslim Americans in the past. It's usually been talking in the context of national security, and Biden's message was extremely refreshing. He spoke about Muslim Americans as being integral to American life, and he talked about issues that Muslim Americans are concerned about. I didn't think that we'd get to a place where, you know, Biden is openly talking about Muslims being scapegoated. And I don't think it's Biden that's done this. This, The shift has happened because Muslim organizations and activists on the ground have pushed for this. And largely, I think Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have really pushed the Democrats towards a progressive platform. Though Biden's address to the Muslim American electorate was brimming with empathy, Tazamal hopes to see his presidential policies follow suit. I think I would like Biden to really lay out what is he going to do about DHS? What is he going to do about Guantanamo? What are we going to do regarding drone strikes? This is part of institutional Islamophobia, which has a huge effect not just on Muslims in the country, but obviously Muslims abroad. I want to go beyond simple, we need more education about Islam. We need more anti-racist policies. Sahar Aziz, professor of law at Rutgers University and founding director of the Center for Security, Race and Rights, said Muslim Americans have slowly come to establish themselves as an electoral force to be reckoned with. For Biden to be presenting openly and trying to recruit the votes of Muslims signifies that Muslims are likely donating more to political campaigns and that there is a critical mass of Muslims in swing states, which may flip to Democrat this year. So I think it's a significance of the coming of age of the Muslim American community, but also of the Democratic Party realizing that the progressive voice must include Muslim Americans. Biden's foreign policy talking points, she says, demonstrate that his team has evidently done its homework on issues that concern diaspora Muslims.
these are issues that Muslims are attuned to by virtue of their common religious identity, and that these are issues that are discussed among Muslims in the United States as well as other Muslims in other countries. He shows that he's been prepped well, and I think it's too early to tell whether he'll actually act on them or if this is really just pandering and trying to hit all the talking points in hopes that he will get more campaign donations and that he will get more votes in those swing states where you do have a critical mass of Muslims. And still, the question of representation persists. Will a Biden administration offer Muslim Americans a seat at the table? We just don't know if he's going to be affirmatively including Muslims at the high levels of his administration, including Muslims as political appointees, including the Muslim perspective when dealing with issues that directly impact their communities. And if he does appoint people in his administration, are they going to be Muslims who actually uh, have progressive views, who want far-reaching change and hold progressive values? Or are they simply people that will be tokenized and that the box can be checked that, look, I have one or two Muslims in my administration, even though politically those individuals may not add any value that is connected to the concerns of Muslim Americans. Prior to the summit, Biden was endorsed by prominent Muslim American politicians such as Ilhan Omar and Keith Ellison. And at polling stations across the U.S. this November, Muslim Americans are likely to follow with hopes for more inclusive leadership that will help turn the page on decades of Islamophobic sentiment. I had IUD soon after my son was born, and that is what was compulsory. I heard there were women that when they were pregnant for the third child, after giving birth to second, they were, they were forcefully taken to hospital and sterilized. And I also know there were, there, were, there were women also, when their workplace found out that they're pregnant for the third child, and they were like uh, harassed. And I was consistently warned that if they didn't do the abortion, that they will lose the job. We Uyghurs, we are Muslims. We don't kill baby. But then they were forced. This is Rahima Mahmoud. She's a Muslim Uyghur woman who said she was forced by Chinese authorities in 1995 to get an intrauterine device. That's a small, often T-shaped birth control device inserted into the uterus to prevent pregnancy. Over the past few decades, hundreds and thousands of Uyghur women have been forcibly subjected to contraception in the Xinjiang province in China. This is according to a new report released by German anthropologist Adrian Zenz. This forced sterilization is part of a crackdown on the Muslim minority group in that region that includes a mass surveillance regime, concentration camps, forced labor, and so much more violence. Many describe these policies as fulfilling the international definition of genocide. Adrian Zenz is one of them. There's a systemic effort to uh, depress population growth among the minorities, coupled with an effort to bring in a large number of Han Chinese settlers to the region. This um, situation and atrocity, we used to call it cultural genocide, and it is cultural genocide, but in light of the new data, we must reappraise the situation and acknowledge that we have evidence of what one could potentially call demographic genocide. The Chinese Communist Party is preoccupied with its control in Xinjiang because of the vast hydrocarbon and mineral resources there are in the region. It's China's largest natural gas producing province. 
So its pursuit is actually facilitated by the way of depicting Uyghur Muslims as violent terrorists. Beijing, in this way, persuades public opinion that the discriminatory treatment of Uyghur men and women is part of a justified national security agenda. Rahima says that her community is constantly victimized by this national agenda to depict Muslims as these innately violent, dangerous terrorists. They started using terrorism after uh, America, you know, the Bush, the 9-11. Suddenly, China declared that they share the same problems uh, with America. They also have Islamic terrorists in the country. Mostly, when they crack down any kind of religion, they always use religious extremism as a uh, kind of pretext. Even though Uyghur women are now making the headlines because of these new findings, Rahima says that her community has been suffering these grave abuses of human rights all along, with little attention given to her by the international community. Any Uyghur woman uh, my age or you know younger, they have experienced this. Even um, I know my relatives, they were fined because they had uh, more than three children. And uh, I also know that their wives were taken to the hospital uh, forcefully, uh, you know, sterilized. Between first and the second child, you must have three-year gap. And uh, if you uh, don't ha- if you don't abide by that rule, then you will be fined, or you will even uh, be thrown out from your work. Senza's report has exposed the existence of systematic measures by China in order to prevent Uyghur population growth. His report cites specific target figures laid out by Chinese authorities in 2019, aiming to sterilize between 14 and 34% of women of reproductive age in the two most populated Uyghur counties. This means that up to one third of women have been targeted by the authorities. The Chinese government disputes these findings, claiming the Uyghur population has doubled over the past 40 years. This is according to Liu Xiaoming, China's ambassador to the UK. In an interview with BBC's Andrew Moore, Xiaoming disputed the legitimacy of drone footage of the internment camps, which have been starkly compared to Nazi Germany's concentration camps. Xinjiang. Have you been to Xinjiang yourself? No, I never have. You know, Xinjiang is regarded as the most beautiful place in Xinjiang. There's a Chinese saying, you, you do not know how big but China is. Ambassador, you, that, you, is not, that is not beautiful coverage, however, is it? Can I ask you why people are kneeling, blindfolded and shaven and being led to trains in modern China? Why, what, what is going on there? I do not know where you get this videotape. You know, sometimes you have a transmi- uh, your transfer of a prisons and uh, prisoners. But population control has actually been a key policy of the Chinese state for over half a century, starting with limiting families to only two children in the 1970s, and then to one only a mere decade later. Since then, many Chinese women have found their reproductive rights at the mercy of China's ruling Communist Party. Although the one-child policy was removed in 2017 for the majority of Chinese women, Uyghur women were exempted from this. This is part of a larger campaign to to attack the Uyghur population, which has ended in an 80% drop in the population growth of the two largest Uyghur prefectures in Xinjiang between 2013 and 2018. 
This wasn't always the case. China's control over minorities used to be more lenient in order to promote an ethnic harmony during China's economic boom in the 1980s. But the turning point happened when the country's wealth accumulation started to slow throughout the past decade. I spoke to Sophie Richardson, China director at Human Rights Watch, about how this economic downturn caused Beijing to depict Uyghurs as terrorists. You know, the current party leadership clearly thinks that there is one and only one model of an appropriately loyal citizen. And what they seem to be doing is systematically trying to hollow out Uyghurs' distinct identity, their religion, their language, their culture. In the interviews that we did with people who had been arbitrarily detained in the political education camps, it were clearly the program was to deny and humiliate people into renouncing their faith and global Islamophobia enable its conduct towards Uyghurs. She says she witnessed concerns from civil society and, and Muslim majority governments, but they don't want to speak out because either they themselves have stained human rights records or because they're afraid to lose economic deals with China. And this change in China's policy towards minorities shows how easily the state is capable of turning its back on human rights in exchange for its pursuit of securing its spot at the top of the global economic hierarchy. For this reason, even the majority of Chinese women are not safe from the state's grip, and they should see the crackdowns on minority groups in their country as a foreshadowing of what could happen to them and their own freedoms. While women were encouraged to join the workforce during the moment of economic prosperity, since the 1990s, women's participation in the labor force has actually been declining. With the government trying to persuade women to return to the role of homemakers and child rearers to rectify its population decline, women are much more educated than ever before, and as a result, they don't want to have one child, let alone two. So the government is trying to persuade them differently. The Xi Jinping government has undertaken a campaign to really encourage women to return to their traditional roles as, you know, as mothers and homemakers and, and to leave the workplace. And again, this is very much geared towards dealing with demographic issues. And so, you know, at a time when there are more uh, women across the country in the workforce, increasingly they're getting the message that that's the wrong thing to do. Now, the international spotlight is on the suffering of Uyghur women and the rest of their community. But Rahima says that these crimes and her community have been going on for decades with little attention from the international community, since countries are paralyzed by their fear of losing their trade deals with China if they spoke out against it. U.S. officials have been the only exception, as they're happy to take the chance to place sanctions on their mightiest rival once again. U.S. President Donald Trump has signed a bill condemning China for its human rights abuses against its Uyghur Muslim population. According to the White House on Wednesday, President Trump signed the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act of 2020 to sanction Chinese officials involved in the detention of more than one million Uyghur Muslims in camps in China. But this is only in an effort to strike China's economy and reputation in the international arena, not for solidarity with Muslims, a group who have been repeatedly vilified by the Trump administration.
Now, with the worst economic contraction the country has seen in the 1970s due to the outbreak of the coronavirus, experts warn that Chinese authorities may have to turn to even more violent measures of control, like those seen in Xinjiang and Hong Kong, in order to prioritize their economic recovery over their respect for human life. Emboldened by the Me Too movement, women around the world have opened up about their experiences with sexual violence, including in Arab countries where patriarchal and misogynistic norms and laws are still prevalent. Over the past couple of months, Egypt, where a UN study says nine out of ten women experience some form of sexual assault in their lives, may finally be experiencing a reckoning that is playing out online. In early July, Egypt was rocked by a viral hashtag naming and shaming a 22-year-old Egyptian student as a serial predator who allegedly attacked dozens of women. An Instagram account titled Assault Police compiled anonymous testimonies by at least 50 women accusing Ahmed Bassam Zeki of verbal, physical, and sexual abuse. Zeki was arrested by Egyptian authorities following the viral indictment. Soon after the social media storm, Egypt's cabinet approved a bill granting anonymity to sexual abuse survivors when reporting the crimes committed against them. However, the shame surrounding reporting sexual violence remains a key obstacle to holding predators accountable. Last week, assault police triggered another Me Too wave in the conservative country, this time focusing on an alleged assault that took place at Cairo's five-star Fairmont Nile City Hotel in 2014. The account said a group of six men drugged and raped several victims. Names and pictures of the accused, who hail from elite families, circulated online. Following the Fairmont allegations, assault police, which boasted over 170,000 followers, had to abruptly shut down last week after its creator had received multiple death threats and was blackmailed with their home address. Assault police emerged as a response to a lack of accountability for sexual violence. In Egypt, surviving sexual assault comes with a badge of shame. Some of them do not want to take legal action. Actually, most of them do not want to take legal action because of family reputation and, and all of these different uh, culturally and social norms that have been rooted in them or rooted in all of us that they cannot go against. Mulk Saeed is a community activist and the founder of Eid Wahda, a platform to support survivors of physical and sexual abuse, as well as connect them with therapists, lawyers, and shelters. Saeed says the Ahmed Bassam Zaki case demonstrates that class factors into accountability for sexual violence, allowing well-off predators to evade prosecution while survivors from conservative working-class backgrounds are guilted for having been attacked. Where class matters the most is actually who the perpetrator is. So say right, so Ahmed Bassam Zaki, um, a lot of women did not want to come forward initially because they were scared. They, they felt like there's no point because he has a lot of contacts. He's well off. Those who are the, on the lower scale of the spectrum, they obviously the women are more vulnerable. They do not have access and also their families are much stricter, they're more conservative. A 2013 UN Women report revealed that 99.3% of Egyptian women and girls have experienced some form of sexual harassment. In 2017, a Thomson Reuters Foundation poll named Egypt's capital Cairo as the most dangerous megacity for women, as they are at high risk of being subjected to verbal and physical harassment. 
Though she praised the Egyptian government's new decree granting anonymity to sexual assault survivors, Said says there is still more to be done with regards to creating an environment where those who have suffered from sexual violence can speak out. The, those who do come report most of the time have lack of social and family support. So that means that those who are there need to be specialized and need to be gender sensitive when they're dealing with these already very uh, vulnerable uh, survivors. The problem is, is that that's usually not the case. So what happens is that they basically go through the process of re-victimization. So they start feeling like they shouldn't have gone, they shouldn't have reported, it's a waste of time, they were treated badly. The judicial process is so long anyways that there's no point in, in doing so. There has to be basically a specialized prosecution unit for violence against women. So that when a, uh, when a survivor reports, the process doesn't take so long because some of them do not have the luxury of time. Are there changes to the better? Yes, 100%. Are they enough? No, they're not. Do we have a long way to go? We have a very long way to go. But are there enough people who are willing to push for this? Yeah, there are. Before the Zeki case, there was Minna Abdelaziz a 17-year-old Egyptian TikTok star who took to Instagram in May to accuse her friend, 25-year-old influencer Mazen Ibrahim, of brutally raping her. The teenager's face was bruised from apparent beatings as she tearfully recounted her former friends uploading a video of her assault to the internet. Egyptian authorities later announced they had arrested seven people in connection with the allegations. Mena Abdelaziz was one of them. In June, Ibrahim was found guilty of assaulting Abdelaziz. The young girl was released from detention only for authorities to place her in a battered women's shelter. Ghadir Ahmed, an Egyptian feminist activist and researcher specializing in gender and women's studies, said that Egyptian authorities' handling of Abdelaziz's allegations laid bare the country's socioeconomic divide. Min Abdelaziz is not a girl from an upper middle class like the women who reported Ahmad Bassamzaki. So the obsession of protecting the class against criminals versus the assumption that this class is already full of criminals. Not all women can report and not all women can still guarantee the anonymity and the right procedures. Min Abdelaziz is detained in a shelter and the minors who reported Ahmad Bassamzaki are still in their homes. This is not how sexual uh, violence should be addressed. Women should be treated equally. One thing that transcends class among Egyptian sexual assault survivors is the uphill battle they face when deciding to speak out. The fear of destroying a girl's or a woman's reputation in Egypt is a thing because people still see the sexual violence survivor as a woman who has a scandal, as a woman who is not respectable enough not to be sexually assaulted. And this is something that is very rooted in the Egyptian society's culture. She will pay for that on a societal level. She will pay for that from her reputation, from her mental health, and from her future. And if the incident happens in her workplace, she would definitely pay for that from her job. She may not find a place to work because she is a troublemaker. On another level of the relationship, men would not have marriage proposal for a woman who said that publicly I got raped or I got sexually assaulted. So she is paying for reporting and she's paying for coming out. Once on a social level and another one on a personal level with her personal relationships. And the level of the court and how to prove that she was raped or she was sexually assaulted.
you will think once, twice, and you will think a million times before you speak and before you come out. Minna Abdelaziz is not the only social media star to have been apprehended by Egyptian authorities. Last week saw a number of sentences handed down to several female influencers. TikTok star Minar Sami was sentenced to three years in prison for spreading immorality and debauchery. Hanin Hossam and Mawadda Al-Adham were among five female social media influencers to be handed two years in jail on charges of violating public morals. And a couple of weeks ago, two women in Nasr City were arrested over their TikTok activities, the latest in Egypt's crackdown on so-called TikTok girls accused of using the platform to violate the country's family values. Accusing women of inciting against family values really reinforces the idea that family values rests upon women's bodies and that they are not free to use their bodies as they want. Egyptian authorities' persecution of female social media users amid a deluge of sexual assault allegations begs the question of whether women's agency over their bodies is more of a punishable offense than attacks upon them. Thanks for listening to the New Arab Voice. This episode was researched with the help of Florence Dixon and Narja Sadat and produced by myself, Gaia Karamatsa, and my co-host, Dania Hajaji. So we will be going on a brief hiatus for the rest of the summer, but we will be returning in early September. And in the meantime, look out for some weekly audio news roundups that we will be putting out over the next month. And don't forget to follow the New Arab on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for more compelling stories from the region.